Here we go. Acts chapter 28. We're going to read We're going to read a small chunk. You guys are all right with that? I feel like being read to for a few minutes. We'll read together. Here we go. And so we came to Rome. That's actually the last half of verse 14. By the way, the map fortunately got left with the custodian. Always appreciate that. Um, Hannah's beautiful map work here. We stopped off in Malta at the end of last week. You can see that little island right there. The squiggly line that starts in Caesarea was the route that the ship that Paul was on as a Roman prisoner. Had a couple stop-offs. Um, almost died in the middle of the Mediterranean between uh, Fair Havens and Malta. Eventually, God speaks to Paul via a vision of an angel and tells Paul, you're not going to die. In fact, I'm going to save your life and everyone else on the ship, a total of 276 people on this boat, trying to make their way ultimately to Rome. God spares their lives. Somehow they manage to make it through the storm and are shipwrecked. They lose the ship, but every single individual's lives are saved and they crash on the island of Malta. They spend three months there. They spend the winter on this little tiny, tiny island, eventually are given another boat and make the final leg of their journey up to Rome. And so we came to Rome just to fill in a few blanks there. Verse 15. And the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the forum of Appius and three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. And when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. After three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews And when they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, that is Israel, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. Next slide, please. Verse 18. When they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty. They wanted to set me free because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar. Remember, Paul was a Roman citizen by birth, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. Verse 20, for this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. And they said to him, we have received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you, which makes sense because Paul essentially went straight to Rome from Jerusalem, so for a letter to have beat him there would have been quite unlikely. Needless to say, the Jews in Rome hadn't heard about Paul's arrival. Verse 22, um, but... They said, we desire to hear from you what your views are, for with regard to this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. Of course, the sect they're referring to is the way, or what we know today as Christianity. Next slide. 
Verse 23, when they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodge in greater numbers. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets, which we would commonly refer to as the Old Testament as Christians. Verse 24, and some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers, through Isaiah the prophet, go to this people. This is Isaiah chapter 6, verse 9. Go to this people and say, you will indeed hear, but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull. And with their ears they can barely hear, and with their eyes, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn or repent, and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you, Paul says, that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. We'll pause right there. Uh, by the way, were the Gentiles. We're Rome and beyond. Um, well, maybe I shouldn't assume that there are no Jewish people in here. But if I had to guess, we're all Gentiles. What to say about Acts chapter 28? Um, actually, I believe there is one more slide. Sorry. We can want to go to 30. There we go. And so we lived there... Paul lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance, the end. That's the end of Acts. It's slightly anticlimactic. It, it just really is. And you can read as many commentaries um, on that as you would like, but from my research, the consensus essentially is that Luke did that on purpose. There's not meant to be this tight, neat little conclusion to the book. In a way, it just sort of leaves you hanging, wondering. It's like, what, what, then what? What next? Uh, obviously, Luke, our author here, uh, knew that Paul remained imprisoned in Rome under house arrest, great freedoms, but under arrest nonetheless for exactly two years, which means he would have been set free after two years, possibly executed, although very brief study of history would tell us that that probably was not the case. And yet, this is where the scriptures leave us. Acts chapter 28. I want us to zoom in this morning on one particular aspect of what we just read, and that's verse 24. Um, don't go there yet, or there. Don't, don't even pay attention to the fact that I'm looking at the screen. Verse 24 says that some believed and some disbelieved. That, that is unsettling to me. Some believed and some disbelieved. Some accepted 
Paul's testimony, Paul's teaching, said that he expounded to them from the law of Moses and the prophets all that had been written about the kingdom of God and Jesus, the Messiah, the king, the rightful king of Israel and the world. And some believed them. Some thought to themselves, yes, this, 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 is, this is clear. This makes sense. You are connecting the dots. Now, there's certainly some debate about it, but this, this seems believable. And so they did. They believed. Others didn't. Uh, some manuscripts, most of your footnotes probably note this, but you may have noticed that there is no verse uh, 29. Some manuscripts include a verse 29 that essentially just says, and the Jews went away disputing among themselves over what Paul had just told them. So there was certainly some debate about everything they heard. The gospel apparently is quite debatable. However, some believed, some did not. Believing, why do some of us believe and some of us not? Have you ever wondered that? Have you ever thought to yourself, why is it when I come to church, some people seem just so easily, happily convinced that Jesus is, in fact, who the Bible tells us he is, and they're just quite happy to live it out. And then there's me and my little dark world of secret doubts that I dare not speak of in the gathering. Do you ever wonder why? Is it because some of us just grew up in church? Is it because some of us are just too smart for our own good? By all accounts, the Apostle Paul was a very, very smart man. In fact, if we think back to Acts chapter uh, 26, the last thing that the governor Felix said to Paul after he makes his epic speech before King Agrippa, his wife Bernice, the governor, and all of the Roman cohort of this big royal gathering, Felix blurts out mid-speech, Paul, you've lost your mind. Your great learning has driven you mad. Paul was, he was a, a well-read man. He was a genius by all historical accounts. So I don't know if it's simply a matter of like, well, some people are just really smart, so it's harder for them to swallow this stuff whole, while others of us are just, you know, just a bit more gullible, I guess. No, no, maybe. I don't know if I would make a precedent out of that. So what is it? Some believed and some disbelieved. Jesus said in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 9, verse 23, he said, all things are possible for him who believes. All things are possible, are possible for one who believes. He said that in response to um, a man, a father, who had a son who apparently had been uh, being like uh, oppressed by a demon. He was experiencing demonic oppression and he brought him to Jesus. He had heard the rumors that there was a man claiming to be the Messiah. People were referring to him as the son of God and he had 
miraculous powers to heal and to set people free. So he brings his son to Jesus. Somehow he manages to make his way through the crowd and he, he finds Jesus and he says, Jesus, if you're willing, if you're willing, will you heal my son? And he said, if I'm willing, all things are possible for the one who believes. And do you remember the man's response? If you're familiar at all with, with Mark's gospel, he says, I believe. Help my unbelief. All in the same breath. Very encouraging. Very encouraging. But Jesus makes the bold statement, all things are possible for the one who believes. You know the reason why we've taken two and a half months to study through the entire book of Acts? You know why we've been doing this? It's not so that we can just acquire some more interesting historical data, um, as much as I enjoy that. Like reading, learning stuff, makes me feel better about myself, feeling smart. Um, but that's not it. It's really not what we're doing here. We've read through the book of Acts so that we might believe that the Jesus who rescued and called the Apostle Paul is the same Jesus who's still in the process of rescuing and calling us to continue the work that he began then. The same work that he left off doing through the life of Paul, he might continue doing through our lives in Portland. And we read through, we study all of the scriptures, but in particular Acts, so that we can say, this is what it looks like. This is, this is what the church is meant to be. I see examples of people being saved, people repenting, turning, and putting their faith in Jesus, being added to the church. People like Paul, who are violently opposed to this, this sect, this cult, this way of Jesus. Jesus interjects into his life, interrupts his, his little self-mission, and he saves him, and he calls him. And Jesus is still in the process of that today. We read of miracles, actual miracles. Pastoral confession, I'm not a cessationist. I don't subscribe to cessation theology. If you do, that's fine. I love you. We're still brothers or sisters. Um, we could debate it, I guess, later. But I believe that the Holy Spirit, <laughs> I'm getting some looks. It's not that controversial, really. It shouldn't be, anyways. I believe that the Holy Spirit is still at work in the church today. I believe he is. I believe that miracles are still a real thing. I desire to be the church who at the very least believes that that is the case and perhaps even acts accordingly. What do you think about that? We'll, we'll, we'll aim in there. Amen. So the purpose of reading Acts is that we might pick up where Paul left off. In order to do that, we need hearts that are soft. Not calloused, but soft. 
open, fully engaged and willing to have faith that Jesus is still at work in his church today. So, why do some of us believe and some of us not? Um, Gosh, I have to tell this story quickly because it's just a good one. I've probably told it before, forgive me. I was having breakfast with a very, very close friend of mine. This wasn't that long ago. And uh, he's not a Christian. I am. And I was telling him my story. Um, He's one of these friends of mine who he welcomes my tendency, my habit to try and convert all my friends. It's a really bad habit. Um, so he, we, we have this understanding in our relationship. We're going to have breakfast, we're going to talk about Jesus, and, and he'll just pick my brains, and it's, that's just what we do, and it's great. So on this particular morning, I started to share my testimony with him. I, I was telling him my story of like who I was, and the night Jesus came bombarding into my life in a very unexpected and relatively dramatic way, not quite Apostle Paul-ish, but just quite radical, And uh, I was describing to him the moment where I was sitting in a room in a bunch of chairs, like probably about a crowd this size, and there was a gentleman standing at a little stage preaching the gospel, telling me that, that Jesus loves me, that he died for my sins, that I might experience new life. And that that God had a new life for me, a purpose for my life. It was the whole, like, God's got a plan for your life message. And it totally rocked my world. The Holy Spirit was present and began to do something incredibly uncomfortable in my heart. Like, it it was physically uncomfortable. And it was like this weight on my chest. And I knew that I had a moment. I had an opportunity to respond, to turn from my old Life, my old way of living, and put my faith in Jesus. That's called repenting and getting saved. And because I'd grown up in church, I knew it was probably going to come next. Like someone, like the guy was going to tell me, raise your hand or stand up or, you know, close your eyes, say this prayer. And I thought, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. And so when it came to that point, the end of his speech, he said, if you want to get right with God, I want you to just stand up right now. Like he didn't even tell everyone to close their eyes, stand up. So I stood up. I've told this story before. I'm telling this story to my friend, and he, 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 he pauses me at that point. He says, Simon, I know exactly what you're talking about. I've also experienced this. And for half a second, I thought, oh, my gosh. Like, my, my buddy, who I love so much, like, this is his moment. Like, I thought he was going to tell me, like, I'm feeling it right now. <laughs> And he, he goes on to describe a very, very similar moment where he's sitting in a church and the preacher's preaching, telling him that Jesus loves him and died for his sins and wants to give him new life. And he said, I felt it. I felt that, that weight on my chest. It was so overwhelming. And I said, what did you do? And he said, I resisted and got the hell out of there. <laughs> Quote, that's what he said. Some believe and some disbelieve. Now, let's talk about, presumably, okay, we're all here, we're at church, so I know not everyone here is a Christian, possibly anyways, but, but we're here because we're interested in, in learning more about Jesus. What does it actually look like to be his church and follow him? And ideally, believe 
him and act accordingly. How does one do that? Um, let's put this slide up. Now we're, we're past that. Here it is. Here's the question. How can we keep our hearts from growing dull, our ears from growing numb, and our spiritual eyes from ceasing to recognize God's activity all around us? Because, you know, we're not just talking about how, how does one sort of like cross over from being not saved to being saved, from not following Jesus to following Jesus. Even if you call yourself a Christian, these questions are still very relevant for us. How can I continue to follow Jesus in a way and trust him in a way and love people in a way that my heart stays soft, that I keep hearing God's voice with some sort of clarity and that as I look around, as I evaluate my life and the world around me, I'm still able to recognize through eyes of faith God's activity all around me. Because, you know, I've, I've looked in the mirror Kenna was talking about, and there's been moments along the way, and you, maybe you can relate with this, but you, kinda, you have a little self-reflective moment, and you evaluate your, your soul a little bit, and you might find yourself wondering, gosh, what's, what's happened to my heart? It feels like, like maybe the love that I once experienced is beginning to cool off. How can we keep our hearts from growing dull? our ears from going numb, and our spiritual eyes from ceasing to recognize God's activity all around us. Guys, I want to, three points, super, super simple. Number one, remember that faith, believing, what we're talking about, remember faith has a context. I'll tell you what I mean by that. Romans 10, verse 17 Ironically, this is Paul writing to the church in Rome about three years prior to him arriving there. And this is what he said in his letter to the Romans. Faith comes through hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. Paul, um, likely while in Rome as a prisoner, later writes another letter, this time to the church in Colossae, Colossians 3.16 says, let the word of Christ, that phrase again, dwell in you richly. Faith comes by hearing the word of Christ. Let the word of Christ dwell richly in your hearts. What is the word of Christ? Okay, now, if you've been a Christian for like a couple of days, you've probably heard someone say like, faith comes by hearing Hearing the word, I shouldn't say it in that tone. Uh, so I don't mean to, to be rude. Faith comes by hearing, hearing the word of God. True, absolutely. What does that mean? What is the word, specifically the word of Christ? Paul, you know Paul only quotes Jesus twice in all of his epistles. Interesting, huh? And one of those quotes, it's a quote that's not even found anywhere else in the words of Jesus. So if you have a Bible with the red letters, those are the words of Jesus, primarily the Gospels, a bit later on, Revelation, Acts. Two quotes. One time, Paul writing to the church in Corinth, and he's talking about communion, and he quotes Jesus and his words that he used at the Last Supper. 
The other time, he's actually, it's, um, it's just a few chapters prior in Acts. And he calls the Ephesian elders to himself before he sets off on his journey back to Jerusalem for the last time. And he gathers the elders and he makes a big speech. And the final thing he says to them, he says, in the words of Jesus, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Where did Jesus say that? I don't know. You don't find it in the Gospels. Here's my point. It's certainly implied, to be sure. But it's not a direct quote. It's not an explicit quote. Here's my point. When Paul is talking about hearing the word of Christ, he's not necessarily talking about the Bible. And now we're, now we're just getting really controversial. <laughs> Now, the Bible is the Word of God. Let's not get too confused. But when Paul's talking about the Word of Christ dwelling richly in your hearts, when he's talking about hearing the Word of Christ, what he's talking about explicitly is the message of the gospel. He's not talking about the Word of God as if he's like referring to his own words in that moment. He's talking about the story of God. He's talking about the, the message of God's rescuing love in Jesus Christ. He's talking about the, the big, the meta-narrative of God, the story of his love and his victory over death. Here's why, here's why it's important to understand this. Faith doesn't come by simply memorizing Bible verses. Faith does not come simply by getting theology degrees. Faith does not simply come by understanding the Bible. Because I have friends who know the Bible way, way better than me. They got letters behind their name. They teach courses on Bible history. They don't believe. In our, in our diligence in our studying God's word, in our memorizing scripture, which are things I highly recommend, in our maturing, in our theology, in our commitment to sound doctrine, all of these extremely important things, we must never, ever, ever forget the context. The word of Christ, the message of God's rescuing love, the story that captures and recaptures our heart every time we remember what it is we signed up for in the first place. This is where faith starts. It's when we remember faith is a context and it is the story of God. Second thing, remember that faith has a to-do list. Anyone into to-do lists? Really? Only a few of you. It's getting a bit warm in here, huh? <laughs> yeah, I like to do lists. I think I don't like making them, but I love checking off the list. It's just sometimes I'll just make up stuff to put on my to-do list. I'll write it down and immediately check it off. I actually do that. <laughs> Fate. <laughs> But the reason why I do that is so I can remember, like, yes, I've done that. I don't need to worry about that anymore. Plus, it does just feel really good. Okay, faith, 
has a to-do list because faith is little more than a notion until it is applied. But when it is applied, faith comes alive. Faith is little more than a notion until it's applied. Um, does anyone ever make like a prayer list? You guys ever do that? A little dry erase board, things you're praying for, people you're praying for, maybe like in the back of your journal. Have you ever made a two-column prayer list? Here's my prayer list, and here's my prayer applied list. Ever thought about that? Just as spiritual. Because faith without application may not actually be faith at all. Or the way James put, puts it, faith without works is dead. Believing is this, it's this thing we do that begins here, hopefully somehow gets down to here, but ultimately works out there. Believing is a dynamic notion. It's, it's connected to action. I met a couple, one time this was back in London, uh, lovely, lovely South African couple, and I was friends with their daughter. Um, I went over to, to her house with another friend of mine, and I met her parents, and they told me, uh, they started telling me a bit about their, their life, and they were trusting God for jobs in London, you know, small feet, um, especially if, if you're a foreigner. And I said, well, how's that going for you? Like, do you have any leads? Have you gotten your resume out there? No, no, no. We're just, just trusting God, just believing. I'm like, well, that's awesome. So like, but, so have you been making calls? Like, how can I pray for you? Like, where are you? No, just, just believing. Have you left the house? <laughs> I don't know that they had, actually. I, mean, I didn't want to be mean about it, but it was the weirdest thing. They had this idea that all they needed to do was just believe. And the idea of actually acting on their belief or their prayers um, apparently hadn't entered their mind. Now, I'm not, I'm not trying to be mean about it, but I'm, I'm using the story to just illustrate the point. Guys, uh, to believe is to apply. To trust God is always translated into action. So try it. If you're into creating prayer lists, make a, make a calm right next to that and start adding action points. Maybe um, synchronize your faith and to-do lists. And every time you ask God for something, for some kind of help, every time you find yourself believing God to help you in some way, try putting an action to it because that's where God will meet us. Not to say that he won't move otherwise. Thankfully, it's not a dependent upon my ability to go make it all happen. But, uh, but faith compels us to act. Um, I love this quote. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, one of my favorite dead German theologians, said, only the believer is obedient and only the obedient believe. It's a beautiful tension. Faith in that way is like a little seed that's been planted in good soil. Every time you water it, it grows. Every time you act upon it, it takes deeper root. And so it is with faith that's being put into practice. Number three, 
So faith has a context, faith has a to-do list, and number three, remember, faith doesn't always play well with logic or feelings. I have three kids. This is a perfect analogy. Isaac's the thinker. He's like Mr. Lego, Minecraft. He's, he's our little, little intellectual in the making. Evie is raw emotion. She's a live wire. It's really, really fun. Makes me very, very afraid for the teenage years. <laughs> I'm hoping that we're just getting it all done now, just all done. Um, and then there's Judah. Uh, I can't quite fit him in either one of those categories. So I'm thinking maybe he's the, maybe he's our little faith Faith guy. He just doesn't seem to think a lot. Um, he's not too emotional. <laughs> but he takes these unrealistic, these, these bold moves. Um, it's ironic that Isaac's the one that broke his arm a couple of weeks ago. Dance party, gone wild. Poor kid. You know, he walked around with a broken arm for almost two weeks. I am a terrible parent. He kept moaning, oh, my arm, my arm. I'm like, come on, my boy. Suck it up. Like, you'll be okay. You have a sprain. Finally, we take him to get x-rayed. Cracked both bones in his forearm. Yeah, the doctor was like, wow, your little boy has an extremely high pain threshold. I'm thinking like, eh. So faith doesn't always play well with logic and feelings, and that's certainly not to say that faith is uh, opposed or, or counter or anti-reason or emotion. Please don't go there. Don't, don't get me wrong. But oftentimes we can make the mistake of sort of amalgamating our, our believing with how I feel or what I think. And I think when we study the scriptures, okay, when we look at the way, well, Paul specifically since we've been looking at him, since we're with him in the prison now, uh, he does things that really defy conventional logic. Like he's doing things that really don't make sense all the time. Simultaneously, he doesn't seem to be too caught up in sort of the emotions of the moment. When the ship's about to go down, he's the one that stands up to declare to the rest of the men in the boat, God has spoken to me. Now, I'm pretty sure he was probably terrified. He was feeling something. He had to have been feeling something. We know for sure that he was at least feeling hopeless because Luke explicitly states that while Paul's in the boat. And yet, he has hope. And yet, he doesn't give up. And yet, he does believe that God isn't a liar. I would put it this way. Faith certainly incorporates our reason, absolutely, and our emotions, but I would say it transcends both of those categories. Let's go back to Mark chapter 9. This is where we started. This is when Jesus was uh, about to heal the father with the demon-oppressed son. And uh, in verse, chapter 9, verse 22, Jesus' response to the man after he asks him if he's willing to heal his son, verse 23, it says, And Jesus said to him, If you can, all things are possible 
for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe. (sighs) Help my unbelief. It sounds to me an awful like, an awful lot like some sort of decision, some sort of act of the will, some sort of determination despite his feelings. Obviously despite what makes logical sense. There's nothing logical or reasonable at all about a little boy who's experiencing the effects of demonic oppression. Tell me what's logical about that. And yet he declares to the king, I believe. Oh God, help my belief. Philip Yancey, if you're into him, he said, I have learned that faith means trusting in advance what will only make sense in reverse. And perhaps my favorite, C.S. Lewis said, faith is the art of holding on to things your reason has once accepted in spite of your changing moods. Sometimes it may not make perfect sense. Sometimes it may not feel quite right. But faith is choosing to believe God anyway and acting on it. One, one more. I'm feeling very quotey this morning. Andrew Murray said this. Beware in your prayers above everything else of limiting God. Not only by unbelief, but by fancying, he must have been British, but by fancying that you know what he can do. Expect unexpected things above all that we ask or think. Beware of limiting God. Not only in unbelief, but in fancying you know what he can do. God's word tells us that he can do beyond what we have the nerve to even ask or dare to think. Let's go to our final church precedent, number 17. Can I invite the band to come up now? We're going to have a time of response. In the community of Jesus, that's us, we act as if our God is able to do more through us than what we might presently have the nerve to ask or even think. Guys, Acts 29 is still being written, and I want us to be a part of it. Jesus has called us to be a part of it. We need hearts that are soft. We need ears that are attentive to the voice of our shepherd, Jesus. And we need eyes that are able and willing to recognize all that God is doing around us. Because you know what? Believing doesn't mean we've got to go out there and like muster up something that we call faith and then hope that somehow God's going to respond. Hey, God's doing stuff. Okay, the Holy Spirit is alive and well, active, still building his church. I just want in on it. I just desperately want to be a part of the work that my father is already in the process of doing in Portland. And I want that so badly for us. I want us to respond now. We're only going to take a couple minutes to do this. You guys in the back row have done awesome this morning. I'm going to 
try to convince your parents to write a book on parenting. <laughs> Don't know where that came from. <laughs> that came from we're almost done. But I want us to respond. We're going to take communion. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. We're going to do that in remembrance. If you're serving communion, you can go ahead and take your place. Thanks, guys. In remembrance of who Jesus is and what he's done, his victory on the cross. Guys, if we're looking for evidence, the evidence that nothing is impossible for him who believes, for the one who believed, Jesus is our supreme model. He believed. He was the faithful one. He is the righteousness of God. And because of who he was and what he did for us on the cross, we have the ability to join in in that reality, to take part in the work, to be used by God, just like Jesus. In fact, that's how he ends the Gospel of Mark. Greater things, my friends. I believe, God help my unbelief.